I don't want people thinking about me a certain way because I'm now I'm a six foot two, 300 pound bald head bearded guy. And you're going to look at me different if I jump out of my Suburban that's black with rims on it versus my soccer van that's white where I carry most of my kids when I'm driving. I don't want someone generalizing me. Welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. Byron Tyler with you on another program. So glad that we could get together. Not too long ago, we had Dr. Lee Brand here on the program. Lee is vice president and dean at the seminary at Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary here in our city, doing an incredible job training men and women for ministry. Lee, welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint again. Hey, Byron, man, I'm glad to be here. The last time we got together, we were promoting a conference at Faith Baptist Church called The Gospel is Enough. Yeah. Have you changed your mind? Is it still enough? No, man, I'm still good with that position. Oh, the gospel <laughs> is enough. Is enough. And I was just looking at your bio. You and your wife have five children. Is that right? Yes, sir. Are you still pastoring some in Mississippi or your concentration is totally at the seminary now? Right now, my concentration is at the seminary and, you know, of course, trying to build some relationships in the community. You've got to put this word in. Of course, with everybody trying to be socially safe, you walked in with your mask on like we always do when we go to and from out right. in the public. But your mask is special. You've got the uh, bulldog mask on. It most certainly is. That's a Mississippi <laughs> State mask handcrafted by a friend of mine. His wife did that for me. Lee, your parents, Lee and Sandra Brand, of course, your dad, your namesake, yep. Lee Jr., you grew up in Nettleton, Mississippi. Absolutely. A huge town. <laughs> a couple thousand people. I don't know. I guess I say my life in many ways was typical. Grateful to be raised in a home with my mom and my dad. Our family was a little bit different. Not only were we blended in the sense my mom had been married previously, but uh, also culturally. My mother is white. My father's black. I guess that came with some of his own challenges, but I think my childhood was very typical. What were some of the challenges that you remember? Well, you know, some came during my life. Some actually came before me. I My, my parents had been together roughly 45 years in small-town Mississippi. They faced some challenges, I mean, from things like being put out of housing, just a multitude of things. I know for myself, growing up, I didn't feel some of the pressures that I, I think I hear other people talk about as it relates to growing up in a racial home. But the way I grew up, I never looked outside my home for validation. I think that was just the grace of God because early on we didn't really have a biblical foundation in our home. But I always kind of gravitated back to my home. That's where I picked up my identity. We were really, really tight knit. I mean, I talk to my mom and dad every day now. That's kind of a little snapshot into our home. There was a time in this country where a biracial marriage was against the law. Yeah. There was penalties. It sounds crazy today to think about that. Well, it does. But I mean, I think, again, it's an expression of, you know, fallen man. I mean, people in their sin will go to great extremes. And that's the same issues, you know, today. It's amazing to me as much as some things change, they stay the same. You know, there were some legal steps taken to where my, my mom and dad could be together legally, but we still have some, some things we're facing that are right before us. And I still think in those things, going back to what the Lord has set up and going back to his word is the only answer for what we're facing. Lee, we're obviously living in some very bizarre times that have produced massive fear, confusion, even for us who follow Christ. Yeah. You know, in my in my position at Mid-America, I've been really, really blessed to have a platform to talk to a lot of different people, different ethnicities. And using that platform, I've been able 
to go back to the same thing because it's something that I believe in personally uh, in the classroom at Mid America. It's something I take in with me, and that is the church through the Lord and through his word is given the answers, and we have to be leading in these discussions. Are we leading? Now, that's the question I see because it seems like, of course, the media attention is not going to give it to the church, obviously. Absolutely not. You know, um, you know I think there are some steps being taken, but just to be very candid, my personal opinion is that I don't think right now the churches are leading. I think that in many instances, we're taking our cues from the world, allowing them to set the tone of these conversations and define the terms of these conversations. Scripture says that let God be true and every man a liar. God is the God of truth. The Son of God is the way, the truth, and the life. Satan is the prince of this world. Jesus said in John eight forty four, he's a murderer and a liar. Talk about the connection. You see what Scripture says here, God being truth, Satan being a liar, in light of the current events we're in right now. Well, you know, I think if you look at, first of all, Scripture, and then take that as the lens through which you view the world around us. The thing that bothers me the most is is you will hear the word unity brought up and us trying to unify, but it looks like the enemy's using everything out there to divide, everything to keep us apart. And I think that as we look at scripture, we just watch it being fulfilled before our eyes. I expect lost people to act like lost people, to conduct themselves like lost people. But what's troubling is when I watch people who say they're believers following the leadership and the cues of the world. Give me some definition or examples of that that you see. Well, I mean, just our desire to sit down and dialogue about this. It's almost like the churches are saying, we need someone from the world to come in and tell us how to look at this. We need someone to tell us how to rightly analyze what we're looking at. I don't think we need the world to help us do that. I think the Bible very clearly does that. And I think we need to look for opportunities to engage one another, right? To have open dialogue and conversation? Absolutely. Uh, I'll give you a a biblical passage I've wrestled with more so the, the last couple of weeks than any other time, and that's Acts 13. When you look at the early church in Acts 13, Luke is very specific to talk about five individuals who are a part of the church at Antioch. He deliberately gives us kind of a teaser about them. He talks about Barnabas at the beginning of the list and Paul at the end. But in between those, he mentions three individuals and he gives us a little short blurb about each one of those individuals. He talks about one who's raised in the house of Herod, the Tetrarch. He talks about one man whose nickname literally means black. And the other man in between Barnabas and Saul is a man who is from North Africa, So there's no doubt culturally there's great difference. You have on one end a Saul who's been raised not just a Jew, but a Pharisaical Jew, which means he's a separatist. He's in many ways, you could call him militant. If you go back and look at his life in chapter nine of Acts, he's going to round up people who are warring against his religion in his mind. So you've got him at this table. You've got a guy in Manaean who's been raised in the house of Herod the Tetrarch. So you actually have at the same leadership table in the church a man who comes from a context of oppression and a man who comes from the context of oppressor. And I think if they, if we're fair to the text, there had to be a point those men sat down and talked about some very difficult things. Yeah, that's a great word there, Lee. And I was just thinking in light of that, too, if you look at the disciples that Jesus handpicked, 
ones to lead our faith, to set the way, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was a motley crew. There was some that wanted to overthrow. They were tired of the Roman oppression, and they wanted to overthrow the government. They thought Jesus was going to help them do that. Oh, absolutely. No, when are you going to set up your, your throne? When will you establish your kingdom? And, you know, I think that so often we look at these temporal issues in our world and we want a right now answer. And I think we have to be reminded our God is eternal. He doesn't have to get in a hurry because the justice that he'll enact in the end, he already sees in the now. Quite often, again, if, if I'm the person that I feel like is being hurt or victimized, I want him to do something now. But he doesn't have to move when I want him to. That's what makes him God. Wow, that's so good. Well, Lee, does the gospel of Jesus Christ speak to the civil unrest and the protest that our nation is experiencing right now? Oh, absolutely. And I think that we have to be, for me personally, I have to be very careful in how I parse those out. We have a right to protest. And I want to make sure that I always separate these two. To me, the issue of protest is a, is a very separate issue from rioting. We have no right to destroy people's livelihoods and properties. Not talking about that, but I think the Bible gives us leadership, teaching, and cues on how we are to handle these things. I think Romans 13 is a great example of that. We ought to be able to have confidence that our legal system is there for the punishment of evil, but for the protection of good. And any time that's challenged, we have to have a godly way of addressing that. So confusing right now. It's essential to help harmless working people lock down at home, keep away from their jobs and businesses so they don't get this virus. But it's more essential to let people bent on doing harm run free in the cities, destroying the very places people earn their living. Such a contrast. Well, you know, but I think, again, you're talking about us looking at a world that's broken, a broken world can't fix the brokenness in itself no more than a broken sinner can fix himself. Uh, I think we're looking for systemic change, and I'll be the first one to champion. This is something that I wholeheartedly push at the seminary, and it's something that we teach. When you look at what's wrong in our world and you look at how Jesus came, Jesus never got pulled into the political wrangling of his day to the point that he forgot what his mission was. He was quick to remind us he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Our issues are soul issues. You get souls converted. Saved souls will help right systems. But you can fix a system and leave broken people inside of it, and the system breaks all over again. You use the word systemic racism. Is that really a reality in America today, in our criminal justice, the employment, housing, health care, political power, education? Is this a reality? Well, again, let me give you my opinion. I would tell you wholeheartedly, no, I don't believe in a systemic racism because a system is an inanimate thing. A system takes on the character of the people within the system. But to say the system itself is prejudiced, I don't know if I agree with that. I do agree there are biases among people who operate inside those systems, and that has to be challenged. But again, to take that statement, it moves away from the issue, because if the issue is a broken system, then we have to fix it. But if the issue is a soul, it needs to be redeemed. And I think that's where we need to keep our focus, right? And not forget we're talking about souls here. Right. And when I see the rioting or some of the other violence that's taking place, my heart thinks about, had they been in an environment where the gospel was presented? Are they rejecting the gospel all out and just being totally rebellious? Yeah. At the very foundation of it, you cannot express opposition to an injustice through expressions of injustice. You know, when you talk about rioting specifically, you're using an unjust method 
to show your disdain for something that was unjust. And those two cancel each other out. Right. You know, there's some sad stats right in our city, Lee, and I know you're probably aware of them, that 20 percent of our citizens are impoverished. I guess I wasn't aware of this, that we are the second poorest, largest city in America. Forty percent of our 160,000 children live in poverty. Ninety-three percent of Shelby County schools are black. Sixty-six percent are not reading grade level by third grade. Those are terrible numbers, by I hope by anybody's estimation. But here I think is where, from the world, I would diverge a little bit. It's how do we engage those? Because to me, just the simple issue of poverty is not the reason that we have so many problems. It may be a factor, but it's not the sole reason. And I think what we're doing quite often is we're jumping into secondary issues and wanting to address those when we're missing what are the primary issues. Basically, you're saying we're looking at the fruit of what we're seeing and not dealing with the root. Absolutely. You know, in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says their minds are darkened, even goes as far to say they are dead. What does Paul mean by that? Dead means dead, brother. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I think when you look at and what he says, and again, take that and let it be the lens through which we see our world, you see us reaping on grand scale across our country and in this world, the fruit of us rejecting God. And that expresses itself in a multitude of ways. Taking current issues, you can see expressions of that in what you see happen to George Floyd. You can see that rebellion expressed in the rioting. And we can see it in a host of ways. We don't have to go to Minneapolis or anywhere else. We can look out our own doors and see these things happening. And I think that's where we have to look at how we engage. When we're told to go win the world, you'll never win the world without impacting your world. It really starts with us as individual followers of Christ. Well, you know, and again, I I take what we do at Mid-America. We champion the idea of to all the world for Jesus' sake. But that starts in the context of Memphis. And so we're doing local practical missions in our own city because to, again, impact the world for Jesus sake, we have to impact our world for Jesus sake. That's something I've always appreciated about the ministry at Mid-America, that you share the gospel. I mean, you require students to share the gospel. Absolutely. When I say require, that sounds like an academic term. But we should desire to tell about the gift, what God has done in our hearts to change us. And we want to say, hey, this is what God did for me. I was broken. I was lost. I was in sin. And yet Christ saved me. And this is what he can do for you. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that we pride ourselves on at Mid-America is the idea that, yes, we can equip you with that scholarly mind, but we want you to have a servant's heart. And when you think about the gospel, I, I view it as this. It's our expectation that we do what we say because we're not going to simply be an ivory tower slash think tank for things of the Bible. If we're not going to be practitioners, then what are we raising up? That's a great word there, Lee. Hitler, the elimination of the Jews, it's a 30-hour documentary on the Holocaust, displays the 85 million people that were killed in about a five-year span, most of them civilians, at least 55 million of them. We hear people talk about Black Lives Matter, and they do. God knows Black Lives Matter because he created those lives. But it seems like if they matter so much, you have an organization like Planned Parenthood that supports Black Lives Matter when there are thousands of black lives being aborted every day. Here is an injustice that gets overlooked. Well, again, you mentioned earlier, 
us needing to reach across cultural lines and engage and have communication. Simply the phrase Black Lives Matter, if you and I were to take that statement and if we could unpack it of all of the political, you know, jargon and yes. the other undergirding things, I don't think there's a human being alive can say they love people and be against those simple words, black lives matter. Right. But I think we have to be fair in that the worth and value of that black life is rooted in the fact that there's worth and value in all lives. It's not throwing away that sentiment, but we can allow again as believers, you can allow the world to set the tone and the terms of our discussions. In your opinion, Lee, what are the seeds that breed this tension. I think you've already dichotomized it between the social and the spiritual, mm -hmm. you know, and the bottom line is spiritual. Yeah. But we are surrounded by those dealing with it from the other side. So how can we as the church engage? You should <laughs> I do. And uh, this is going to be a tough answer because it comes out of the context of that Acts 13 passage I mentioned earlier. I think we have to make some very deliberate and very conscious decisions around this question, do we value our Christ more than we value our comfort? Because inside the body of Christ, if we were to look over Memphis and any other area in this country, we tend to let our church affiliation, we tend to let our community of friends be based a great deal around where we're comfortable and our comfort gets exalted above Christ. If you and I have Christ in common, that ought to be exalted above everything else. When you get to that table at Acts 13 with those five different personalities, it's not that they don't come with cultural baggage. I believe that's why Luke gives you the, the short descriptive of those three men that we don't really talk about anymore. We can build the backstory on Barnabas and Saul, but those guys had to exalt Christ over comfort for Menaean to put his hands on Paul and pray for him to be sent out as a missionary and to fund his mission and to hear the reports when he came back off mission trips. And we're not doing that today. And you mentioned Antioch. Of course, that was where Christians were first called Christians, right? Right. right. That's where you get the name. And, and again, if we're going to be true to our name of Christian, you know, it doesn't just mean Christ-like. It means little Christ, like we're carved out in his image. Well, look at what those people in Acts 13 are doing. Look at how they're living out the gospel reality. And we've got to push ourselves to do that because that's hard work. And what we can't do is let ourselves be lulled into this idea on Sunday that we can walk into our churches exalting Christ while carrying the idol of our comfort. When you look at training the next generation through the work of Mid-America, whether it be the college or the seminary, in light of things we're seeing now, you know, because I've interviewed different pastors over the years. They go through seminary training, get into the ministry, and then they experience things. I wasn't taught that in seminary. Is anything that's happening right now causing you to look at the way you might instruct, train, and help students prepare for issues like we're facing right now? Absolutely. And I think it, no matter what point in time you live, we're called to do ministry in the context of that time period in which we live. And so for me, the thing I love about being at Mid-America and the thing it gives us an opportunity to do is that we actually get to embrace this idea of taking the Bible and using the Bible as our guide to understand our 
time, our culture, and our specific context. And so we've never had a culture at Mid-America of training people in an impractical way. And what I mean by that is how do we take these biblical principles and apply them in this situation? So that's what we're doing. Leah, I noticed that when you were pastoring in Mississippi in Starkville, you were also the chaplain for the Starkville Police Department. I'd like to get your input and thought on, you alluded to earlier, how God has established the authority in police for us as a society to, to be safe, to protect. The authority structure is placed by God. And then there's big talk right now because of all of the unrest about defunding police, doing away with police altogether. Having worked around police and understanding from their perspective uh, as a chaplain, any insight there you want to speak to? Man, I have tons. I mean, from, from my own personal experiences growing up, which weren't all very good. I mean, I have some what I think are some pretty decent horror stories of interactions with the police. But then growing up and also being where I am now and having served as a chaplain, what we have to understand, no matter what side of this issue we're on, No matter how good or bad a person is, that by itself has no ability to take away, thus saith the Lord. If the Lord said these structures are to be there, if government is there, again, to take care of those who do good and to be a force to push back against those who do evil, then that's what the Bible says. Now, what we have to learn is how to work inside that command. Yes, we need to have, I think, very good systems in place that guard against Abuses of power on the side of a police officer, but that doesn't mean that police and those who help enforce laws are not worthy of our respect, of our prayers and of our support. But I think that's how we handle it again, taking this back to a biblical framework. And you say that in light of stories where you yourself a victim of abuse? I've had police officers slam me on the hood of a car in an incident I wasn't even involved in. I was walking down a sidewalk and they had another man pinned to a car My friend and I just happened to look in that direction. Another officer off to the side, because I was the biggest guy in the group, I mean, he just kind of went off. And he grabbed me, threw me on the hood of the car. It's the middle of July. It's scalding hot. The hood of the car is hot. And he tells me, you need to keep your face on the hood of this car. That's happened. I've had officers stop me in Tupelo, Mississippi, throw all the stuff, all the contents of my car around in my car, pull my seats up looking for, you know, drugs or whatever they thought I had. And when he gets done and and had me standing in the pouring down rain while he did it, he said, we didn't find anything. You can fix your car and go on your way. And again, that's that's two. I could keep going. But it doesn't make me think that all police are like that because I'm very much opposed to generalizations. I don't want people thinking about me a certain way because I'm black. I don't want people thinking about me a certain way because I'm now I'm a six foot two, 300 pound bald head bearded guy. And you're going to look at me different. If I jump out of my Suburban that's black with rims on it versus my soccer van that's white where I carry most of my kids when I'm driving, I don't want someone generalizing me. But I don't have any right to do that with the police officers either because just as sure as there may be, quote unquote, the bad apple, I can tell you other stories where men and women in uniform have been there for me and for my family, and I appreciated that. Yeah, I I remember as a child, not in the same degree, I've heard countless stories of black Americans who've been abused, harassed by police for no reason. Mm -hmm. But I remember as a kid, about 10, 11 years old, had walked up to the corner store, came around. There was a buzzer and a light every time you kick the garage door of this gas station. It wasn't going to a security force. This was just and be a bright light that would come on. Ten minutes later, it would go off. As a kid, you think that's pretty cool. Well, I walked by and kicked it to get my thrill. And next thing I know, I didn't see this police officer pull up behind me and said, 
stop. I turned around and he had his gun pointed at me. If I'd taken one more step, he probably would have shot me. That's not the same. I know. Right. Well, I mean, it's the issue of that person having the power. You take my example versus yours or in comparison. Let me use that phrase. Yes. I'm in a situation where there's nothing I've done to even warrant this person coming toward me. Right. But every action on that person's part was to show me. I'm the one in authority. The cop's the one in authority. Not that I had ever challenged that. And I think those instances, especially with the way they're being highlighted now, we have to come up with a constructive way to deal with that. But the constructive way is not to lump an entire group of people together and say ABC about them because there are those who don't fit that. Just like if we generalize about black people or any other people, white people, uh, and I won't even get on the conversation about white people and white privilege right now because I have plenty I could say about stuff like that. And maybe we should do another show on that. Hey, brother, I'm at your disposal. <laughs> How can we learn more about Dr. Lee Brand Jr. and the ministry at Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary? Well, um, I don't know if anybody wants to learn any more about Dr. <laughs> Lee Brand Jr., but if you want to learn more about Mid-America, you are uh, welcome to, to visit our website, mabts.edu. Come by our campus uh, when we're able to open back up uh, to the public and do things. Um, so classes are online? Well, the, in the fall, we our plan now is to be residential uh, and online, and we are taking steps, if necessary, to uh, go to a hybrid or go back to solely online classes. In addition to all your responsibilities, are you teaching any classes? Yes, sir. I, uh, I, I have the pleasure of being the chair of practical theology. I teach biblical preaching, and I teach pastoral ministries along with some other things. So what does a typical day look like for you? Is there a typical day? Atypical. <laughs> I mean, you know, um, I guess, man, during my work week, I'm in the office right now. I'm buried. I actually have a Do Not Disturb sign up right now. I'm trying to do a lot of reading and research and getting ready to teach a, a doctoral seminar in the spring, building class stuff because, you know, it's being smaller. Everybody has dual, at least dual assignments. And so the teaching side takes up a significant portion. The administrative work is another portion. But the Lord has blessed me in that I try as best I can. When 430 comes, I can try to leave some of that behind. But, you know, I'm reading and researching all the time. Dr. Lee Brand, God bless you, my brother. Thank you so much for what you're doing for Christ's kingdom through the ministry of Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary. Thanks for being our guest today. Bless you, brother. Thank you. Hope you'll come back. Man, love to. We've got more to talk about, I know. I can talk. I'm a preacher. Maybe we should make this a regular feature. You know, you just believe Brand comes on and we share. <laughs> that's, that's up to you, you're, Okay. <laughs> well, friends, our pleasure to have Dr. Lee Brand Jr. today, Vice President and Dean of Seminary at Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary. We appreciate you stopping by. Pray for our nation and see how you, as Dr. Lee mentioned earlier, how you can be the pivotal point to make a difference for the gospel and to touch somebody's lives in love, embrace. We can. We're the church of Jesus Christ. We've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to do this. Let's do it. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Byron Tyler, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.